Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 444, our surprise FAQ part two show. Uh, I was like, what episode number is this? Is this 443? Is it 444? I'm so confused. I think we I asked, thought... asked each other that question multiple times. <laughs> um, so uh, everyone, what you're about to hear is actually what we thought was the second half of an epically, like just mammoth sized show that was going to put all of the FAQ on the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, as well as busting some common myths all into one giant show. But it turns out that that giant show was actually like not just way bigger than even we thought it was going to be, um, but it was just too much work for Matt to, to edit in one week for our teams to do all of their different contributions to getting this show out. So in respect for poor Matt, um, as well as our teams, we um, ended up breaking it up into two, but a decision that was made uh, after Matt was well into trying to edit together a mammoth file. So uh, without further ado, here is the rest of our FAQ and myth busting on the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. And if you haven't yet listened to part one, episode 443, jump over there and do it as a reminder. We're not medical professionals, and we encourage you to talk to your own. So we have one more sort of like frequently asked questions, and then we'll get into some of the like real just big myths. Um, But this is one that is, I'm not going to read the the question or the comment, um, but it, uh, there's a well-known influencer with a science background on social media who's talking about the mRNA vaccines causing immune attacks on hematopoietic cells and the vaccines causing antibody-enhanced COVID-19 infection. And um, it's especially because it's somebody who um, has a a similar acronym um, to mine at the end of our names. Um, It's, uh, I think it's really important to, to talk about this. So um, hematocritic stem cells are cells that originate in the bone marrow and then circulate in our blood, and they are responsible for replenishing blood cells, all kinds of red blood cells. So red blood cells, immune cells, and platelets for our entire lives. Um, So they're a really important blood cell. They are, for example, the type of cell that if you had uh, cancer and had, you might have a hematopoietic stem cell transplant um, after radiation treatment, for example, to replenish these cells. Um, and they're a really cool stem cell type. Um, so they're like one of the first responders to infection. And then like what they, what type of cell that they replenish is driven by cytokines. So those, these chemical messengers of inflammation. So for example, you would get dendritic cells and macrophages and neutrophils if you had high levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha or interleukin-1 or interleukin-8, if you had interleukin-2 or interferon beta um, or interferon gamma or any of the interferons, you would get uh, T cells and natural killer cells. If you had interleukin-6 around, you would get B cells. 
Um, so they are like a, a really, they're um, a stem cell type that is like plugged into how the immune system is, is working. And what's really interesting is that pro-inflammatory cytokines are required for the maintenance of not just, it's not just telling the stem cells like what the immune system needs them to, to, um, to differentiate into, which is sort of like a maturation um, and proliferation. Um, but it's also like they, these inflammatory cytokines are part of uh, the homeostasis of hematopoietic stem cells and how they respond to immune stress. So uh, they're very cool. And they also, another way that they're cool is they actually have um, these uh, present in their membranes, uh, immune inhibitors in order to um, be able to control how the immune system is responding without being the victim of the immune system. So they actually have ways to ev evade our own immune system, which is also very cool. So uh, hematopoietic stem cells, super awesome cells, zero evidence whatsoever of any vaccine, including the mRNA vaccine, causing any kind of immune attack that would kill hematopoietic stem cells. I've got a bunch of references that we'll put in the show notes, but that does not, that's not a thing. That's not ever been a thing. And it's, it's just, it's not like, they're a cool stem cell that interfaces with their immune system and even has ways of evading our immune system, which is super cool. That's vaccines. There's no evidence that any vaccine is going to hurt them or, um, mRNA drug technology in any way. So, um, let's, Let's say, well, maybe yet growth mindset. There's a study out there that hasn't been done. If it were the case that these vaccines could harm hematopoietic stem cells, you would see that would actually suppress the immune system, right? That is why people after getting a cancer treatment that kills off these cells need a hematopoietic stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant to replenish them. And they have terrible <laughs> immune suppression in the meantime, um, and they have to be really, really careful about exposures to infectious agents because they don't have an immune system that can fight them off. So Pfizer tracked 21 different types of severe infection and showed no statistical difference between the vaccine group and the placebo group. Um, Moderna did as well. They had, they tracked, um, Stacey, you're going to love this, infections or infestations of any kind. Um and they had, again, like 521 in the vaccine group, 621 in the placebo group. Those numbers sound different, but they're actually not statistically different. Um, so you would either see a signal in uh, susceptibility to infection, or you would see a disorder related to low levels of hematopoietic stem cells, like aplastic anemia. None was reported in either trial, like leukopenia. Um, there was one case of neutropenia, which is a type of leukopenia in the placebo group in the Pfizer trial, or thrombocytopenia. Again, this is related um, to a clotting thing in the Moderna. Um, there was one case of a 72-year-old vaccine recipient with Crohn's disease and short bowel syndrome who did develop thrombocytopenia. Um, uh, 40 days after the second dose. Um, it was considered to be related to um, kidney failure. But again, there was one case in the vaccine group and in Pfizer, 
the Pfizer trial, there was one case in the placebo group of thrombocytopenia. So that's, again, not a signal if you were expecting this vaccine to be causing an immune response that killed off our hematopoietic stem cells. So that's one piece of not... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Not a thing. Um, let's talk about antibody enhanced infection because this is something that has been... Uh, a concern about the COVID-19 vaccines from the beginning. Um, and it's in part, you know, as we've been learning about COVID-19, this has been something that's been on the radar of researchers. Because I think we talked about it in episode 425, our like COVID-19 FAQ part four show, um, where we talked about antibody enhanced infection with dengue fever. Brief recap, um, antibody enhanced infection can occur through two different mechanisms. So one is where antibodies somehow increase viral uptake into cells. And that's what's happening in dengue fever. There's four different strains of dengue. Um, If you've been um, exposed to one strain in, and you get exposed and you recover from it, if you get exposed to one of the other three strains in this window where you have a small number of antibodies still in your blood, but not zero, then those antibodies help the dengue fever virus get into your immune cells. What's critical here is the cell type that is being infected is immune cells um, that normally see an antibody and go, oh, you're a bad thing. I'm supposed to eat you. So it's the specifically the eater cells. If those are the cells being infected, that is where this mechanism happens. There's another mechanism that's a a little bit more, um, it's not quite as well understood, that can potentially lead to antibody-dependent infection or antibody-enhanced infection is more of a uh, function of the immune system. So a sort of imbalanced immune response that can end up enhancing inflammation and the damage caused by our immune system overactivation. So there are a whole pile in critical care medicine, right? There's a whole category of conditions. These are what I studied for my PhD and my first postdoctoral research fellowship that are related to not the original injury, but injury caused by our immune systems going crazy. One is acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that is the complication that's leading people um, into, you know, need requiring ventilation with COVID-19. Um, and that is definitely like, it's not just the infection, but it's the damage of the immune system being way over ramped up on top of that. Um, another one is called what I actually studied for my PhD is called uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And both of those can lead to something called multiple organ dysfunction syndrome or multiple organ failure syndrome. So this is a category of, um, of complications that happen in ICUs and critical care wards that are related to immune system overactivation in a generalized way, not a specific way like what's happening in autoimmune disease. So there's also this idea that in some circumstances, uh, there could be antibody-enhanced infection through an immune system overactivation type mechanism. 
So um, it's really important to state that there's no uh, evidence that the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, infects these eater cells. So that mechanism is off the table. And actually, there's no definitive role. You know, we've this this virus has been in the world now for 14, 15 months. Um, there's been no definitive role for antibody-enhanced infection uh, for human coronaviruses at all, for any coronavirus, um, including the four that caused the common cold, the one that caused SARS, the one that ca- caused MERS, or COVID-19. So, um, so that's, <laughs> right now there's no evidence for it. If we were concerned, um, this would be something that would apply to all vaccine platforms, right? Not just the mRNA vaccine platform. Um, so calling that those vaccines out as potentially, you know, a problem because they would cause antibody enhanced infection while saying that another um, platform is is safer is sort of a misunderstanding of how antibody enhanced infection would actually work. Um, and again, this is based on this seed of truth that the early attempts to develop coronavirus vaccines, these were against SARS, um, did show antibody-enhanced infection in cell culture models. Um, And so what they actually discovered was, through this research, was um, that the the target wasn't right for those vaccines. So those were protein subunit vaccines. Um, That early research looked at the um, full spike protein. And um, what they actually learned was that if you develop antibodies against the full spike protein, that those neutralizing antibodies somehow help the virus get into cells. So here is where previous science helped inform current science and why uh, science is awesome. Because what those early studies did, we mentioned this actually in our previous um, vaccine shows, was that one of the reasons why these vaccines were able to be produced so quickly wasn't just that mRNA vaccine platforms are um, sort of, uh, they're basically, because of the coolness of the platform, it can make vaccines really quickly. Um, But then we've got more traditional vaccines that are coming down the pipeline also very quickly. It's because of all of the work that went into vaccine development. It was eventually abandoned because SARS and MERS didn't become global pandemics the same way COVID did, but it was because of this type of science. So the spike protein is the part of the coronavirus that binds with our ACE2 receptors. Once it binds, it splits itself in half. Um, It's called, it's spike one and spike two, because um, sometimes when biologists name things, they're not very creative. Um, Spike two, S2, is the part of the spike protein that actually mediates the fusion between the viral envelope and the host cell membrane. So it's actually what helps, the whole spike helps bind to this ACE2, the spike then breaks in half, um, and S2, the S2 half, is actually what helps the virus get inside the cell. So, Here's the cool thing that we didn't actually cover when we were talking about the Moderna vaccines because um, it didn't seem like this level of detail was important back then, but it does now. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines actually don't encode the mRNA for the full spike protein. They just encode 
for what's called the S2P antigen. Um, so it is the spike two with the cleavage site intact. Um, and then they actually have changed two amino acids uh, at positions 986 and 987, if everyone wants to know, to help to stabilize the protein in its shape once it's formed. So all of that was possible because of the research done 15 years ago on SARS vaccines. So we took that information and went, yeah, we don't want to make a vaccine against the full spike. We want to make it against half of the spike. Um, and interestingly, that old research kind of showed that it didn't matter which half of the spike you did. Um, there was some other really cool information that came out of those, those early studies for SARS vaccines. So another possibility that they showed, again, this was all discovered in uh, cell culture studies and animal studies, um, but they, there was another potential vaccine-induced injury called eosinophilic immunopathology, which is, again, this like, imbalanced immune response. In this case, it's a type 2 helper T-cell skewed immune response. Um, and it was actually that particular um, bunch of, uh, th that particular problem was reported with inactivated virus vaccines for SARS-CoV, the first the first COVID virus, um, the virus that was responsible for the SARS um, outbreaks in 2002-2003. Um, so what they actually showed was that this inactivated virus vaccine could cause this thing. Um, they had to actually be really specific about what adjuvants were being added to those vaccines. So they were able to get around it by changing the adjuvant added to the vaccine. And then you didn't have this TH2 skewed response. And I mention that because the Chinese vaccine uses um, this inactivated virus platform. So just like I would not judge the current mRNA vaccines based on the lessons that were learned 15 years ago in a vaccine developed for SARS, I would not judge the current Chinese vaccine that uses an inactivated virus platform. Um, I would not be running around saying it's going to cause eosinophilic immunopathology uh, based on the lessons that were learned from the early SARS uh, vaccine candidates. <sighs> I got angry, didn't I? I've been <laughs> just, trying to hold it in. <laughs> just breathe. <laughs> oh, we will have much on the Patreon. Okay, so... Um... We've, we've, we've got some doozies ahead. Are you ready? I am. Okay. I am. I think um, as we sort of wrap, wrap up, um, you know, the, all of these first FAQs kind of have a similar theme, which is like, what about vaccine-induced injury that we won't know about until um, a, a wider percentage of the population is vaccinated? That's one of the things we talked about in our second show um, is, you know, for these things that are like one in a million events, I mean, they're still terrible for the one person that it happens to. Um, and they're really hard to find in the phase two, three clinical trials because there's just not enough numbers. Like if you see one of these things in one of those clinical trials, you get really worried because it looks like it might be a more frequent event than one in a million. So um, it is worth sort of saying that, you know, um, for all of these things, there is the possibility that additional research will change the landscape. For example, again, uh, maybe there's antibody-dependent 
um, or antibody enhanced infection with COVID three years out from natural infection. And we're going to find that out later. Um, if that were the case, you know, one of the things that could happen is an annual booster for the vaccines, right? To make sure that you never hit that low but non-zero level of antibodies that we know is problematic for dengue, for example. Um, but we're talking about a virus that has caused over 2.3 million deaths globally, um, over 470,000 in the USA. Um, the vaccines right now are our best tool for getting through this. I, for one, would love to be able to leave my house and go back to my gym. I really miss that. And um, and I think that it's, it's important to kind of center ourselves on um, – is it's the cost benefit analysis of all vaccines. Um, if there is, and we still don't even know if there's a one in a million bad thing that's going to happen with the COVID vaccines, um, what are the lives that can be saved with that vaccination program? Um, all vaccines are created for high morbidity and or mortality um, viruses that uh, we don't have other tools to treat. That is, that is why we do vaccines. Um, and we can do things with good vaccination programs. We can do things like eradicate smallpox. So let's center ourselves on what these vaccines have the, the possibility to do for our very strange society right now. So there are a lot of, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, put these under the banner of corporate conspiracy theories. Um, these, I don't have questions from social media because let's face it, like these weren't our listeners asking earnest questions. It wasn't probably even regular readers asking earnest questions and said it was uh, mostly trolling. Um, some of it was um, uh, <laughs> people having a bad day, I'm sure. Um, but I did want to include these in this show because I know that these um, are pervasive on the internet. And it's not, you know, I, I know our listeners are here for the science. I'm going to give you some science because you might have friends or family members who've heard these. I want our listeners to have some facts to engage in that conversation. Um, because when these people ask me this question on social media, they're not looking for an answer. They're not looking for um, science or conversation. Um, it is not, again, it's not an earnest question. Um, it's more of a rhetorical one. Can I just kind of mention in on this, I think one of the things that I, um, have seen from people who approach, um, their beliefs this way is kind of turning it back on a question or saying, if that's what you choose to believe, right? Like I, I think the hardest thing is um, if it comes from a genuine place of not understanding and having heard things over and over again, like we're going to give you the answers to some of these. But on the other hand, most of these come from people who have a belief system, which is not going to be changed from a logical conversation or science. And so yeah. while we're arming you, I also just want to say like for your own stress and your own sanity, um, having seen some of these conversations on the internet and the absolute lack of logic. Um, so for example, the accusations that were made about our podcasts or the, well, why don't you talk about the blah, blah, blah. 
none of those people actually listen to the show because we did talk about adverse reactions or, you know what I mean? Different things like that. And so it doesn't behoove me to spend my time and energy getting into it with someone who is literally only depleting the energy that I could provide to someone who wants to have it. And this is kind of a life lesson for me as, you know, a leader and just a mother and all of these things. It's just important you know, just my own kind of little soapbox for a moment of we're going to talk about some things that, you know, maybe you have heard them and you're looking forward to answers on them. Or maybe you've heard them and you got upset when you read them because it you know that it's not true. There were a lot of people who on social media were like, oh, I saw that, you know, chain on that page and it made me so upset I had to leave. And so for Sarah and I, the people who are leaving aren't who we're hearing from. It's the people who are like, you know, the opposite of that, who are putting the theories there. Yeah. And so we're addressing those people here. And then we're, we're, we are not going to spend more energy on that because it is not worth our time. We would much rather spend our energy into actual fact and science to support people who want to hear it. And I just, I think that that's important in this day and age, whether it's political, whether it's, like I said, parenting, whether it's, you know, someone you work with who sucks your energy, like, it's just, uh, we call those energy vampires, right? Like, Mm -hmm. are you, are you letting someone drain that from you? And if so, like, I just recommend putting it out there for someone to do their own work and knowing that, like, if they're open to it, they will. It's not your job to fix someone else. Yes. Okay. The first one um, that uh, we can't trust the vaccines because uh, it all comes from for profit industry. So it's biased. Um, you know, it is not in uh, a company's interests to kill people or make them sicker. It definitely impacts the bottom line. Um, but also, um, most vaccines actually like that have ever been developed have been industry academic partnerships. So the base science that they're based on is academic science, which means it's funded by government grants. Um, the, you know, science is published through the peer review process. Um, you know, all of those processes are in place to make sure that science isn't biased, right. To make sure that when science goes out, it is, um, you know, high quality science. And that doesn't mean that mistakes aren't made, but like one in a thousand papers are retracted. Um, So 999 out of a thousand papers go through this rigorous process of peer review and are, you know, it, whatever flaws in a study are caught in that process and and are either addressed um, and then the paper gets published or uh, the paper never makes it to getting published. Um, and the, the studies themselves on all of the, the vaccine development safety, there's multiple papers for each vaccine. Um, those studies were peer reviewed. The FDA review process used uh, independent review from a panel of scientists. And there's been a ton of non-biased eyeballs on all of this data. So other than to say, um, you know, it's, it's science. Um, yes, there's some companies making money off of the manufacturer, but the, the, the way that these things were developed comes out of, you know, academics. Um, so, you know, no, we, we like, yes, this, this data is data we can trust. It has been thoroughly vetted. 
I'm I'm good there. Um, so there are some people who are scared that the mRNA vaccines will alter DNA. Um, so we talked about in our first show how RNA is like an in-between step between the instructions that are locked in our DNA and the protein that those instructions, you know, help. It's like a recipe, right? Um, so the cool thing about mRNA vaccine technology is that the mRNA doesn't go into the nucleus where our DNA is. Um, it's RNA is different than DNA. That's a different chemical. Um, and so it actually can't, there's no risk for insertional mutagenesis. Um, and actually because the mRNA is degraded by normal cellular processes, it doesn't even stick around past a few days. So, um, so we, we covered all of the science on this in depth. If you're listening to this show and you haven't listened to our first one, go back and listen to our first one because that's where this whole explanation is. Um, but no, the whole cool thing about the mRNA vaccines is that there is no risk of it altering our DNA. So it's actually the opposite and it's very cool. I, um, I'm glad about that. I, I think there's a little bit of nuance of science from, you know, what you talked about earlier and also kind of, um, just being aware of kind of the, I think of it as like a line that it doesn't cross. <laughs> if that makes mm -hmm. sense, right? It's like, there's, there's like this... a nuclear envelope. There literally is a membrane that it can't, it doesn't cross. It does not go in the nucleus. Yeah. It's go. like, it really is a line, it's, except yeah. it's mostly spherical. Right. So my, my, my brain, it's like, there's a line and it doesn't cross that line. Yeah. Um, and okay, just keep going. <laughs> I think, okay. I think we see that in a multitude of ways that we also talked about in the show. So I'm good. Keep, keep going. Um, there is a sort of pervasive myth that the vaccines contain aborted fetal tissue. Um, this comes from the, um, fact that immortalized cell lines are used for medical research and vaccine development. Um, so I want to take a section to this, like a, just a minute to talk about what immortalized cell lines are. Um, so these are used, there's hundreds of them and they're used in medical research. And basically what they are is cells that, um, can divide forever, um, in a Petri dish and are always the same, no matter how many generations of cells they are. And, um, they're, they're used for tons and tons of different kinds of medical research. And in order to create immortalized cell lines, they have to have certain mutations because if you normally took, if you took a sample of, of somebody's cells and put them in a Petri dish, by the time they've divided a few times, they're, they can't, they're not healthy anymore. They can't, they, they change, they die, they're not stable. Um, and it's because our cells age. So what's cool about immortalized cell lines is that word, right? Immortal. They're literally cells that have specific mutations that allow them to clone themselves indefinitely. Um, and this is, we see this in real life in cancer cells. Cancer cells are cells that have developed these mutations to be able to live forever. That is one of the reasons why cancer is so hard to treat. Um, and, uh, it's, there are some cell lines that are derived from fetal tissue because stem cells are also, um, like this. So this is one of those things where the ethics of medical research in the olden days are not the same as the ethics now. So nowadays, um, you're, you're not seeing, uh, people <laughs> resect someone's tumor 
in a surgery and then turn that into an immortalized cell line without ever asking for permission. But some of the um, like most used cell lines come from, you know, people in the, you know, these come from like the 60s, 70s. Um, some of them come from the early 80s. Um, but it comes from uh, people's cancer cancer cells um, that they weren't necessarily asked for. So for example, I used to do experiments in two different cell lines. Um, one were called MDCK cells, made in Darby canine kidney cells, um, came from a cancer, uh, kidney cancer in dogs. And the other ones were called KCO2 cells. Um, KCO2 cells were human colorectal adenocarcinoma cell lines. So they came from a colon cancer from an African-American man whose tumor was excised in 1974 at Sloan Kettering. Um, and his name is, is lost. Um, so there are these cell lines that are continued to be used, but the, they were derived from a tissue sample decades ago. Um, it's not how, you know, like it, they're basically a tool now. They clone themselves indefinitely. Um, and there are some certainly that have, have come from aborted fetal tissue from the sixties and seventies. Again, the ethics now would not allow those cell lines to be developed, but because they have been developed, it's not, you know, it's not a ongoing process. These are cells that have been cloning themselves indefinitely since the sixties. Um, they're such a valuable medical tool. The, the, while the ethics wouldn't allow us to create that tool now, the ethics don't really allow us to stop using this amazing tool, if that makes any sense. So there are some cell lines that have this like ethical gray area around them. However, neither Pfizer nor Moderna used any immortalized cell lines that originated in fetal tissue um, from any, for any stage of design, development, or production of their vaccine. So even though these cell lines exist in medical research, and I really I want to be really upfront about where they come from, um, that there are some ethical questions about how they were developed in the first place. Um, these are not cells that it's not something where you're, you're continuously harvesting tissue in order to have these cells. These are cells that have the ability to clone themselves forever. Um, and the original tissue was from 50, 60 years ago. Um, and also neither Pfizer nor Moderna used any of these, uh, ethical landmine <laughs> cell lines uh, for their vaccines. Whew, I know that was a doozy. I appreciate you pulling all of the very specific examples and information as it is one of the most common questions we get. Is there a place where people, if this was of significant importance to them, could look at um, which vaccines would have included some of them and which wouldn't like, do we have a, a source? Like a one single source, um, <laughs> you know, like a, a guide sheet. I don't, I'm sorry to make light of the situation, but I do think that there, you know, are some people who would want to know like, well, which is which, if that makes sense. Well, what I can do is what I can do is I can tell you the four cell lines that are being used in some of the COVID-19 vaccine research. Um, and then that would be something that you could easily like Google, the name of the vaccine that you're interested in looking at and these different four cell lines to find out. 
Um, also, if you like all of the scientific papers for the vaccine development are all like they're pretty much all going into New England Journal of Medicine, which is a full public open access journal. Um, and that would be something that would be found in the methods section. Um, so that's another place to look. But it would you'd have to there's not a table of which vaccine has used which um, cell line in their design or development. Um, so it would be something that you would have to look up individually. Um, and we can make sure that as we talk about vaccines on the show, that we're completely transparent about this fact, if it's something that's really important to people. Um, but the four cell lines that um, are being used in some of the COVID-19 vaccines that have made it to clinical trial, one is called HEC-293, H-E-K-293, um, this is a kidney cell line that was isolated in 1972. Um, uh, per C6, PER.C6, uh, retinal cell line isolated in 1985. Um, I, I can't remember. I don't remember how people actually pronounce this one. It's WI38. I think they call it Y38. Um, it's lung fibroblasts. These were isolated in 1962. And the last cell line is MRC5, which are also lung fibroblasts, isolated in 1966. Um, so those are all immortalized fetal cell lines um, that may may have been used in the design or, um, of some of these, some of the COVID-19 vaccines, not the Moderna or Pfizer-BioNTech. So those are the ones to um, to basically like look and see either in their papers, in their method section. I mean, don't just Google and be like, oh, look, here's a social media post that tells me yes. Um, go have a look at the method section of the paper. And again, you know, I, if this is something that is um, really important to our listeners, we can definitely make sure to include this as we talk about other vaccine candidates as they get approved. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, okay. I, I think that there's a couple of quick, easy answers on the next mm -hmm. couple. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about microchips, shall we? Um, so this is kind of cool. Microchips can be really small. So microchips can actually, like the smallest, uh, they're called RFID chips, radio frequency identification chips, is actually 0.15 millimeters square and 7.5 millimeters thick. Uh, that is like a, almost like, think of like the tiniest pencil lead, right? That's pretty small. And it's actually small enough that you could fit it into a 21 gauge needle, which is what most of the COVID vaccines are being administered for. Uh, but here's the kicker. So the transmission, so, uh, the, the RFID chips are transmitters. They have to be scanned. So in order to scan them, like if you put a, a, a microchip into your pet, um, the vet has to hold, first of all, those microchips are way bigger. Um, they're, they're, you know, like you can actually feel it underneath the skin. They're, they're pretty big. Um, they have to be injected by like, I think it's like 14 gauge needles. They're, they're a very different thing. Um, and the scanner has to be held right on the scruff of the neck where the, where the chip is in order to read it. The, the distance between the transmitter and the receiver is a, um, 
is related to not necessarily the size of the microchip, but the size of the microchip antenna and the power of that antenna. So these super tiny microchips that would be small enough to actually hide in a needle, if that was a thing that was actually being done, it's not, um, have to be read by a few millimeters away. So by the time it actually goes into your depth of the needle, it's already too deep in your arm that if you put a receiver on your skin, it would not read it. Um, in order to, to have a chip that is big enough to read from that distance, it has to be the size of the, the chips that are in pacemakers. Um, they're uh, four by one millimeters, which would not fit into any kind of needle that we have. Um, and that would allow to be read at a distance of two centimeters. Um, in order for, I was trying to think of like, how could this possibly be read? Okay, let's Let's super game this out. Uh, you want the data to go to a satellite. Let's say it goes to a cell tower into my cell phone first. So we want something that could be read from the distance of my cell phone. The, the antenna size and the, the power source um, that would be big enough to do that, you would actually end up then being limited by Ohm's law, uh, which states that the power across any circuit element is the uh, current squared times the resistance, and that power is dissipated as heat would actually fry any microchip. So in order to even create a microchip that would be big enough to be read by a cell phone in my hand and the microchip is in my arm, um, it's basically an impossible, an impossible technology because of the way currents move. Um, so it would basically, it would overheat and burn out, uh, which would probably hurt also like a lot. So um, this is just not a, a technology that uh, follows the laws of physics. The laws of physics say not, not a thing that could possibly happen. That was way more information than I even realized we could get into. And, <laughs> um, I appreciate the thoroughness to that myth. Uh, here's another one, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Are you being paid by Bill Gates to say all this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people think that's the case. Um, I was on the phone talking with um, Carissa about uh, this particular accusation on social media. And I was walking through the kitchen because I was getting a cup of tea. And my husband went, oh, I wish. That's where <laughs> I'm at with this. I'm like, you know, if I was getting Bill Gates money. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it would only take me a few hundred million dollars for, to buy out my integrity, I think. I think that's all it would take. Um, no. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than no. Um, I, I know what to say. Like, and I know that our listeners know this. We genuinely care about your health and well-being. That is why we have literally dedicated our careers. Likewise, there are many people in this field who have dedicated their careers to health and well-being. And I'm just going to get on a little soapbox for a minute to say, like, it's one thing to question the food pyramid, for example, because we know that the food pyramid is um, being directly influenced by appointed individuals who have a bias and are being um, supported by lobbyists. And there is some science to support some beliefs that were put in place at some time. And we also know that with administrations, that's changed over the years. And to be able to objectively look at that and say, okay, well, the science is now updated. And what we believe is 
gut health is important and vegetables are important. And we're giving you that information. And it's easy to conflate a disbelief in a system when the system is so wide with such a big umbrella. And I think that's why we hear things like, if you don't consistently disbelieve everything that's coming from that umbrella, then you must be part of the system. But I know that our audience is smarter than that. We have a big brain audience. And yeah, they, they know that we not only um, have more nuanced thought process than that, they know that we are here because we care. And we would never um, say something simply because we were being paid for it. And I point to like, this show used to have guests on it. And that means that you get more visibility when you have a guest on every week because their audience comes, right? Like that's just, mm-hmm. that's how things work. Um, that's why people often partner together on giveaways on social media, for example. Like I'm just, I'm giving you all the behind the scenes knowledge here, but we chose to no longer have that opportunity because we had a couple of experiences with guests on the show that said something that they believed which they're entitled to say, but that didn't represent what we wanted you listeners to believe or to hear or to represent our beliefs or our values. And so we stopped doing that because it was like, we, we can't continue to let you be confused listeners by what we're saying or what the science supports and then what someone else says. And so I hope that um, our listeners can stand up for not just us, but other people that they know and trust. Another consistent theme was, I trusted you on blah, 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 and now I don't. Well, we're still the same people. Like, mm-hmm. We're still we're still I'm... the exact same people who do the research and care about you, and we're providing facts. And what we hope is that you take this information, knowing who we are, what our values are, what our priorities are, and you make an informed decision. Like that's yeah. we're if we were being paid by Bill Gates, don't you think that he would mandate we recommend something that then puts money <laughs> in his pocket? Like we're not oh, even yeah. doing that, that's you probably, know? That's probably what would happen. Um yeah, I mean this this is the thing. As I am applying the same um rigors of research to this topic as I do to every topic we talk about on the show or I write about on my website, um, or in my books. And um, uh, and we've talked about this on the show, but the science is the science and that's what we're trying to represent. We are trying to, um, we're trying to help people, um, regain and maintain their health and wellness, uh, through scientific literacy in a lot of ways, right? We're trying to help people expand their knowledge base to inform their day-to-day decisions without, guilt, without pressure, without, um, you know, a lack of understanding of the day-to-day challenges that can interfere with our best intentions. And, um, and the idea behind everything we do on this show is to present the science in as balanced and complete and a context way as possible. That's why every once in a while we have a show as long as this one. Um, and I have addressed the research on COVID for all of our COVID shows last year and now the COVID vaccine shows this year with the same approach and the same rigor. And I, I don't know what else I can say other than, um, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a nerd, and all I'm trying to do is talk about facts. <laughs> I feel like 
that needs to be the mic drop moment. Okay, a little bit left. Thank you for those of you still hanging in here. Um, what What's next? Well, I, I know that we really, you know, in an effort to um, be able to move on from COVID shows for a little while um, and put everything that was left to talk about into this one epically long show, um, we did want to sort of talk a little bit about rollout priorities and challenges with the vaccine, as well as what to expect when you get one, if you choose to. So um, right now, you know, there's still the there's not enough vaccines for everybody yet. They're working on ramping up production and distribution, but there are a lot of distribution challenges. Some of those are inherent, for example, the cold chain requirements for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and some of them are uh, the result of systemic inequities. So um, I know we kind of wanted to just briefly touch on this. Um, so the the what the CDC has recommended is uh, to prioritize healthcare professionals and people who are more likely to get severe disease from the diet. Uh, severe disease. I read that. Sorry, Matt. I read the miss the typo, and I processed it as a typo as don't say that read it properly and then I still read it because it's terrible okay sorry Matt so what the CDC is recommending is that we prioritize healthcare professionals and people who are more likely to get severe disease and die but there's actually like multiple different ways that you could still define the populations so the CDC has come up with these recommendations right the phase 1a is healthcare personnel and long-term care facility residents Phase 1B is frontline essential workers and people over the age of 75. Phase 1C is everyone over the age of 65 and those between 16 and 64 with high-risk conditions and any other essential workers that haven't already gotten it. And then phase 2 is everybody else. But every state is kind of interpreting those guidelines differently. Um, where I am, it's a phase 1A+, plus, which is kind of like halfway between like it's bits of 1B, 1A and 1B. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, and so one of the things that's happened because these are sort of guidelines um, and every state has done it their own way. And in fact, every hospital that um, or like location that has gotten doses is doing it their own way. Um, there's been a, a real disparities in how the vaccine has been distributed so far. And there's now a lot more studies showing or data showing that the there's racial inequities in the vaccine distribution. And so this is something that's very upsetting to me because black people were are are 1.4 times more likely to get COVID and 2.5 times more likely to die from COVID. And that is the result of systemic racism. Um, so they're more likely to be low paid frontline workers. They're more likely to have pre-existing conditions. They're less likely to have health care. They're more likely to experience medical racism, which could impact the quality of care. Um, and, um, and now they're also less likely <laughs> to be able to get the vaccine. Um, so fewer than half of the states are actually even keeping demographic data for vaccine distribution. Um, but those that are show that there are inequities that differ from state to state. So for example, in Delaware, 22% of the population is black, but only 6% of the vaccinations have gone to black people. In Louisiana, 13% of the, of, um, the vaccines have gone to black people despite 32% of the population being black. In Pennsylvania, 3% of vaccines versus versus 11% of the population. In Florida, it's 6% of the, 
of the vaccines versus 16% in the population. In Mississippi, it's 17% of the vaccinations versus 38% of the population. Like, it's, it's, it's not okay. And the, the reasons are this compounding of different factors. So it's not just one thing. It is the fact that vaccination appointments in most places require access to the internet. A lot of them require smartphone apps. So depending on your, um, this is also something that's impacting elderly populations. If you don't have access to the internet or you're not tech savvy, or if you don't have a smartphone, that's going to make it really hard to get a vaccine appointment. Or Many you have of the a job centers, as an essential worker that, right. you know, scheduling something like this is also impossible. Yep. For sure. Um, many of the centers are drive up. So if you don't have a car, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you go get your vaccine? Um, and especially in the South now, there's information showing that many of the vaccine locations are in predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, so that's also like you, that, that you're then asking a black person to, um, or any person of color to travel like much farther to get their vaccine, which again, is not going to be compatible with a, you know, working two jobs type schedule um, and, or even one job for that matter. And vaccine hesitancy, of course, is also a factor, um, which is something that can be addressed with increasing education. Um, but basically, these are, you know, all things that need to be solved at the the policy level. There's some really good ideas going around, like looking at uh, mobile sites for vaccination or door-to-door programs, which would be excellent. Um, so there's there's lots of solutions going around. Um, but I think it's worthwhile mentioning here. In terms of like, what can we do as an individual? We can donate to advocacy agencies and we can not engage in vaccine tourism. Um, You know, I, again, we sort of talked earlier about like being in the right place at the right time. I think that's a different thing than like, I'm going to travel to this place in order to take an appointment away from somebody who's local, who should be in line before me. Um, So that is something that I, I think you know, I'm sure all of our listeners are already on board with this of, um, you know, waiting our turn. Um, but I, I'm planning to get mine as soon as it's my turn, but I'm not going to butt in line. I think that's a really valid point and I echo your sentiment. Um, okay. So who should wait to get a vaccine? Why are we, why are we, why are we not on the list? No. Um, Well, uh, I mean, certainly, you know, there is a list that's based on priorities and it is about easing the strain on the healthcare system as quickly as possible and saving lives. So fair. Um, the people who do need to wait are children 15 and younger because it's not approved for them yet. Um, and we don't know. Um, I'll reiterate for pregnant and lactating women to talk to your doctor. Um, they also are recommending it's sort of, if you're immunocompromised, if you're on immune suppressing drugs, even something like prednisone, talk to your doctor. Um, generally they, you know, would prefer for any vaccine that you go off of prednisone before getting the vaccine. So that is another just conversation to have with your doctor. And as we talked about in, I believe the second episode, um, polyethylene glycol is one of the nanolipids in the the delivery envelope around the mRNA in these vaccines. So if you have a known allergy to PEG, um, that would also be a reason to, again, talk to your doctor. Maybe maybe your allergy is something that they can you can mediate with them. Um, it is found in some other vaccines and a variety of medications and laxatives. 
Um, so if you have a known allergy to PEG, and then if you have multiple severe anaphylactic allergies, talk to your doctor. They are doing a, a system where they have you, once you're vaccinated, they have you wait for 20 minutes to see if you do have an allergic reaction so it can be treated. Um, but if you are concerned about that, talk to your doctor. Um, and then also, um, there, uh, I believe it was out of Norway, there was some reports of terminally ill elderly patients passing away after the vaccine. The World Health Organization has investigated that and basically shown that they're, they can't draw a link um, to d directly to the vaccine, um, that this, these were people who literally already had weeks to live. Um, but, uh, but that data would be, I think, indicative that uh, if you're talking about somebody in hospice with weeks to live, um, that that might not be somebody who, again, talk to your doctor. But that that might not be where a vaccine dose needs to go. I just don't understand. It's, I guess it's not my job to understand, but if someone was already in hospice, why they would be getting vaccines? It's just, I'm like having a hard time wrapping my brain around that one. So, um, okay. The last question um, on this, <laughs> this is not yeah. at all rapid fire. Um, no, it's not. Why, um, why, why are some places doing a different cadence? So because there's a shortage of vaccine and because um, even though it wasn't a primary um, measurement for either of the, the clinical trials for the Pfizer and Moderna, there is some early data showing that the vaccines are like 60 to 80% effective after the first dose um, that in the absence of adequate supply of vaccine, there are some governments that are making the trade of twice as many people at 60 to 80% versus holding back that second dose um, to make sure that everyone gets vaccinated on the schedule that was tested in the clinical trials. Um, and they're basically making the bet that that will get them to herd immunity faster and that will ease the pressure on the healthcare system faster. Um, it's important uh, to emphasize that, you know, we really don't have conclusive data on how effective the vaccines are, if the time frame between shots is altered, how long that immunity lasts, if that second dose isn't given on time. Um, and so, you know, the companies that are making the vaccines are like, please don't do this. We don't know what will happen. Um, and the governments are like, we need to fix this problem. And so this is a... Um, policy decision based on limited data, I'm glad I'm not in a position to have to make a decision like this because it's a, it's a really tough one. Um, and it's, it's a gamble in, in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, there, there's some data that is driving the, the decisions. Um, but it really felt, you know, like the solution to this is actually to find ways to ramp up vaccine production. Cause that's really the, the thing that they're trying to get around is like, how do I get the most good out of a limited number of vaccines? So getting rid of the limited number would fix the challenge the fastest. Okay. Makes sense. Um, what, what else do we got here? I have a question from uh, real Julie Ralston who said, I've heard not to take Advil when you get the vaccine because it diminishes its effectiveness. Take Tylenol instead. Is this true? You guys did an amazing job with the podcast and should be so proud. Haters gonna hate, but hopefully the lovers will be louder. 
um, which I, I love. And there's Julie, also a heart emoji. Julie's on my beauty counter team. So I'm like, what's up, Julie? <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So we got a, we got a personal connection here. Um, so this is actually true for all vaccines that you don't want to take an anti-inflammatory because it suppresses part of the immune response. And that's basically counterproductive to the whole idea of developing immunity. Um, what they would normally say is to take Tylenol if needed for fever or pain. Um, and otherwise, write it out and basically do what you would do if you were recovering from a cold or flu. It's, I mean, the, the the vaccines are causing sort of flu-like symptoms for a couple of days. Um, and note that it is reportedly worse from the second shot from the booster. So the things you would do is rest, fluids, nutrient density. It's not a good day to go run a marathon, right? Like you're going to give your immune system the time to to learn what it's supposed to be fighting off and do its thing. Um, and really, you know, the, there are some reports like, whoa, that second shot is a doozy. And I think it's worthwhile acknowledging that as adults, we don't get very many two-shot vaccinations, right? We get, um, you know, maybe at most like the DTaP booster every 10 years and maybe the annual flu vaccine. Both of those are one-shots. Um, you know, they, the only way people are getting two-shot vaccines as adults are if you're going to travel somewhere that has something that's not part of a normal vaccination schedule. So, um, you know, we're this is an experience we're not used to. And it if you're not expecting it, uh, it, it can be like, holy smokes, I did not think I was going to feel this bad. Um, your immune system is doing its thing. All of those flu-like symptoms are like a good sign. Um, not that you have to have them in order to develop immunity. Also, if you get the the COVID vaccine and you feel great, that doesn't mean your immune system's not doing anything. Um, there, but there is a pretty wide range in terms of how severe those side effects are. They're side effects and they're expected. Um, so it's just because it's something we're not used to doesn't mean it's something terrible. So again, uh, just rest, right? Give your immune system this, the space that it needs to, to do its thing. That's, that's the whole point. I did see, um, for the, I don't know, I was on some medical page that asked a similar question and they said, absolutely do not take any beforehand. And if you are on some sort of um, medication, like I know some people take daily aspirins or things like that, like talk to your doctor and the vaccine provider about that. But that later, um, this advice said, if you really need to, like on that second or third day or whatever, like it's, they said it was okay and whatever that, um, I don't know if it was on the CDC website or whatever I was reading, but like it, your body needs to have an immune response. So if you're able to, like for me, when I have a cold or a flu, I try to just, you know, let it ride, like drink broth and whatever, but that, um, it's the immune suppressing, especially beforehand that you really don't want, if that makes sense. So I think that applies, I think that applies to Advil, Tylenol, aspirin, like and any of that stuff is going to have an impact. So talk to a medical professional if you're so, doing that. So Ty Tylenol is not a very good anti-inflammatory, which is why taking Tylenol would be like the first step. Um, so it, it's an analgesic without, it's not an NSAID. Um, so it's an analgesic with pretty, pretty minimal effects on inflammation. Whereas Advil and aspirin are both part of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug category, um, which means they do reduce inflammation, which is why if you can ride it out without taking those it's better. But again, like, you know, that's, if you're feeling really like it's, it's intense, call your doctor and your doctor will make a recommendation. Um, you know, and they'll be able to say, and often when you call your doctor, you can, oh, uh, 
nurse practitioner or somebody will answer the phone and be like, no, cool. You're three days out. Go ahead and take Advil. Um, but that is definitely, you know, that's why that's best practice is because we want to give our immune systems, um, all, all of the opportunity that they, they need to develop that immunological memory, which is the whole, the whole thing we're trying to get with a vaccination. Er, my gird. I think we made it. We're done. <laughs> Thank you listeners for hanging in. If you are still here and listening, just my heart, my heart beats for you. We are going to pop over to Patreon and tell you what we really think now that we're wrapping up this whole, um, first series of COVID vaccine shows. So if you didn't get enough in this two hour show, you want to know some more, or if you just want to support us, um, that's really what allows us to do these kinds of shows that are not sponsored on, you know, contrary to beliefs about Bill Gates, um, is your support. Um, we're getting a little loopy here at the end. Um, so forgive my sense of humor about something that someone thought was true. Um, so we're going to pop over to Patreon, and um, if you choose to listen to that now or you just kind of save some of those up because they're short, shorter, um, it, you know, it supports us in the show, and we really appreciate that. And we also love to be able to connect to you as a family over there because you have more kind of intimate access to ask, you know, questions that get followed up. I think I mentioned before um, our team member who kind of moderates those will hunt us down to make sure Mm -hmm. we respond to them. So um, thank you as always for being here, for being so supportive. If you enjoyed this show, honestly, could you, I would just, just be your bestie. I mean, we're already besties, but I would just, you know, give you that virtual hug with my small black heart if you could leave us a review on um, however you're listening to this because there are going to be people who leave a bad review without even listening to the show and you offering um, actual feedback about it in a positive way will help other people be inspired to to give it a listen and be open to the information that's provided Um, and so I just thank you in advance for doing that. Thank you for sharing this with those people in your life who you'd like to share information with. We've heard from so many of you who have shared the show with those people who are also like me, vaccine hesitant, um, and who are looking for information. I know medical professionals are saying they're offering it to their clients. Like, I just, I can't thank you enough for um, being kind and being helpful because that is our goal is to really just, you know, share information and that you're perceiving it that way and you're giving unto others is an act of service that we are ever so grateful for. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.